0: Hi, I'm Pat Kelly. And I'm Peter Oldring, and we're the hosts of This Is That. Are you kidding? For over a decade, we were radio's go-to source for completely fabricated news. You must be joking me. And now, we're back in podcast form. We've selected some of our favourite stories from over the years, and put them in one convenient location.
1: Sugar in the tap water. Bilingual dog park. Charging to see
0: wildlife. This Is That, coming soon on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast.
1: I can't really imagine how weird this level of fame would be. I don't know if you can. You're reading things about yourself online constantly. And what you're reading is out of touch with who you actually are as a human being and as an artist. At this point, Julia Fox, designer and actor, has learned to block out most of the noise. But part of the reason why she wanted to write a memoir was to be the author of her own story. You're going to hear from a really intelligent and complex and I think misunderstood celebrity, Julia Fox. Coming up, I'm Talia Schlanger in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Julia Fox is an actor, an artist, a fashion designer. You might know her best from the movie Uncut Gems, where she starred with Adam Sandler. Maybe you know her from the New York art scene, where she staged art exhibits and photography shows about her own life. And now she is adding writer to her resume. She has a memoir called Down the Drain that tells her story from growing up in New York City as an unsupervised kid getting into all kinds of trouble. She talks about losing people close to her and dealing with her own addiction. This is a story of survival and perseverance. And I got to say, if your only frame of reference for Julia Fox so far is what you might have read in the tabloids about who she's dating or what she's wearing, you are going to hear how she's taking back her own story. Julia Fox joined Tom Power from New York City to talk about it. How are you? I'm great.
2: Thank you. I'm happy to be here. i um, very excited.
0: Yeah. How's, how's the book experience been for you so far?
2: Well, it's all very new to me. Um, it's my first book I've ever written. Um, hopefully not the last, but it feels kind of like it's been a very long time in the making because this is something I've always wanted to do. I was always um a very avid writer. I feel like I actually express myself way better writing than I do speaking for some reason um and i it, it just always been a huge passion for me. I actually wanted to be a writer when I was a kid, and people would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I would always say writer, and then it was very quickly kind of knocked out of my brain because people would say, well, you know, be prepared to be broke and starving. And but ultimately, I always had it on my bucket list that I wanted to write a book and at some point tell my story.
0: Why? Why now?
2: You You take opportunities as they come. And I, as I mentioned, I've been you know, wanting to do this forever. And I had actually already been in touch with um, a book agent. And so we'd been like pitching this thing for a while. And then obviously we know when my name was splashed across the tabloids, it became more incentive for a publishing house to pick it up. You know, that's how it works, unfortunately. So, but you know, we we jumped at the Opportunity.
0: Does that go both ways? Like when when your name is splashed across the tabloids, and it's a greater incentive for a publishing house to want to to want to publish your book. Does it Does it go the other way? Does it go that like, hey, my name is being splashed across the tabloids. People think they have this idea of who I am. This is an opportunity to let people know who I really am.
2: One hundred percent. One hundred percent. I feel like when you, you know, it's so funny because I always hear so many things about myself, and it's either that I'm like this. You know, mastermind, manipulative, like marketing genius, or I'm like this vapid, um, you know, like dumbass, and you know, <laughs> sort of, which is it? You know, like so. This is a way that I can. This is a way I can kind of like rewrite my my own narrative, or like set the record straight, I guess, because I think a lot of people have um, preconceived notions. They maybe see the makeup, they see the clothes, and they just don't get it, and so you know, this is a way to just kind of like maybe humanize me and, um, you know, show that there's much more than meets the eye. And hopefully people will be able to empathize a little bit more and not, um, you know, project their weird, whatever it is onto me, you know, I don't want to speak for them, but it seems like a lot of the time with celebrities, we kind of want them to be godlike almost like they have to be these perfect people and like we project ourselves onto them and they're kind of like mirrors for us and um but it's like it's wrong ultimately you know celebrities really are like just people (laughs) and um and i like hate that term celebrity it feels so icky when people like refer to me as a celebrity i'm like ew stop like gross um it just feels really like foreign still because to me, I'm just me, you know?
0: It's a, it's a, it's, I think it actually makes the art less valuable when we think about it as being made by like some kind of godlike figure. Like to mm-hmm. me, to me, art is way more powerful and meaningful if it does come from other people.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think, I think everyone can probably relate to that sentiment. And also, like, fame is this weird thing because it's, like, other people are doing it to you. Yeah. But you are responsible for it. You know what I'm saying? So it's this really weird. And, and I don't want to sit here and, like, complain about it because I know people will be like, oh, poor you. Wah, yeah. Wah, you yeah. Know? But, like, it is very strange and should be dissected, I think, because it's a very strange phenomenon. Because ultimately, it's, like, I'm not the one holding a gun to your head like Google me, you know, yeah. like, I'm not like doing that. It's you guys that are doing that. Uh, I'm just showing up and being myself. Um. So, but then it's very interesting because then it's kind of like this really heavy cross to bear in a way where like, then, you know, you just have to be perfect from here on out. And it's like, it just feels so not sustainable, especially for someone like me. <laughs> I, it doesn't feel natural.
0: Yeah. I think John Updike, the author, said, um, celebrity is a mask that eats your face.
2: Yeah, totally. I can 1,000% um, relate to that. And that's kind of why I just try to be like as authentic as possible and you know, still have fun with it and try not to listen to the noise. I just tune it out. I live in my own little world. I'm with my son like 24 seven. Um, and having a kid keeps you humble, you know, cause he does not give a shit who I am. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He's not, he's not Googling you and seeing that how often you're no. you're showing up. I understand. No. Um, no. th- well, it's funny. I want to talk a little bit about that, about like sort of your own kid's experience maybe versus your your own experience as a kid. And maybe the best way to start things out is, so when we read off the bat, you write about being, um, I guess, kind of like an unsupervised kid. When your dad was at, at work, you'd stay home by yourself watching Jerry Springer. There's like a really kind of... Uh, there's a part that really kind of struck me where you, you talk about, like, sometimes he'd go to work and the easiest thing to do would just be to kind of lock you in your room and you would have to mm-hmm. use the cat's litter box as mm-hmm. a, a as a bathroom. You know, when, when you write about little Julia living like that, how do you feel?
2: You know, at the time, I didn't know anything different. So I didn't have any issue with it. Then when you get older, you're like, oh, that wasn't normal. That wasn't OK. I think when you're so young, you just think everyone lives like this later on you you know you have more insight on the rest of the world and you realize like oh that that might have actually been really messed up and not okay to do to somebody especially not your kid
0: does that make you look at your son differently does that make you look at that like the the upbringing that your kid is having uh, so differently than yours
2: oh yeah it's night and day and I guess because I feel like I had a pretty tumultuous upbringing, I, I just really want to bring stability into my son's life. I want him to know that I'm the same all the time. You know, I'm not going to be in a bad mood and take it out on him. I'm not going to, you know, I'm just not going to expose him to that. I want to I preserve his innocence and I don't want him to have to grow up really fast like the way that I did.
0: You you write about your dad in the first page of the book, you write. Thanks for the you write to him, you write. Thanks for the mistakes you made which I turned into art. No matter where life takes me, all roads lead back to you. But please, whatever you do, do not read this book.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh. And I went back and forth with that dedication so much. I would like remove it, put it back in, remove it, put it back in. Cuz obviously, you know, I have a lot of resentment toward my dad, but ultimately it's like, he has his own demons and he had his own childhood that he definitely has not come to terms with. So it's like, I can't, he's a boomer. So it's like, what do you expect? (laughs) Like what do I expect? It's like, you know, but ultimately like, do I want him in my life? Yes. Do I love him? Yes. Do I know that he loves me? Yes. Was it perfect? No, but like, you know, what, what, like nothing's perfect. And it's like, if I'm going to hold on to that resentment and that anger at the end of the day, it's only going to hurt me, you know? And like, I'm the kind of person where if I'm like mad at somebody, it consumes me, like it eats me alive. So I, in a way I kind of just have to forgive and try to forget, but it's hard and give my son the opportunity to, have a grandpa and give my dad the opportunity to be that adult figure that he couldn't be for me in a sense, you know, cause he's so freaking good with my son. And I'm like, where was this person? You know what I mean? Like what, what? Like, even if I'm like reprimanding him, he'll be like, don't do that. You know? And I'm like, what, you know, like I would have been slapped upside the head. (laughs) So it's like, it's just so different, but I think ultimately a lot of people can probably relate to that. You know,
0: one of the things you write about in the uh, early parts of your book, especially when you get to, to middle school age, is you start going through puberty, and you you, you you write a little bit about how you know you were you would sort of wear baggy clothes and and try to sort of um, obscure the 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 your body that was that was changing. But it's very quickly established in the book that you were very sexualized very very early. Uh, boys are commenting on your body in the halls at school. Your your first kiss is with a 26-year-old man. With some distance now, uh, what effect did that have on you?
2: I mean, I have absolutely zero interest in men today, so that could be a direct result of the aforementioned. Growing up with my dad and my brother, and there was always a lot of men around, And in a way, I like wanted to be like them. And so, yeah, I would wear the baggy clothes and just kind of try to erase any signs of femininity that were starting to emerge. But then I very quickly saw the kind of power in a way that I felt when I could use the way I looked to get something I wanted, you know, to get the results I wanted. And then that became pretty intoxicating. So I went from like complete tomboy to like very, very slutty in like a matter of minutes because I was like, what? You know, I just never, I never felt, I always felt very powerless in my life. And now suddenly I have this, I'm able to manipulate just off of the way I look and it feels pretty effortless.
0: If you feel like you have no power, all of a sudden it gives you a little bit of power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, doesn't that come up too in the, in the dominatrix chapter of the, of the book? I mean, you, you write, um, you start looking for a job when you're 18, you come across an ad on Craigslist that says dominatrix dungeon hiring, no sex, no nudity, no experience necessary. And you apply and, and get the job. I really love Mm -hmm. the way you wrote about your first day at work there. I thought it was really funny. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that?
2: You know, I had always known about dominatrixes and dominatrix extensions cuz I had a a friend who's in middle school, I had a friend whose older sister was a dominatrix and she would always come home with so much money and she would get dressed in the mirror and and she'd have on the latex and the the leather and the platforms and the fishnets and I was just so mesmerized by her. So I had always known in the back of my head that this was a thing that people did. You know, I didn't really know what what it entailed, but it, you know, wasn't rocket science. I knew she was beating up guys or doing, you know, yeah, things along yeah, yeah. those lines. Yeah, fair enough. So, you know, when shit hit the fan, so to speak, and then I saw that ad, it just felt like a no brainer, you know, cause prior to that, I, you know, worked in ice cream shops, shoe stores, um, p- pastry shops, I babysat and it was minimum wage, $7 an hour. And it was like, not sustainable at all. Like, I remember just being like, how do people do this? Like, how can you live on this and go to school? You know what I mean? It just felt like, just so impossible. So when I saw the ad, I just jumped. I was like, and you know, my, my friend's sister popped into my head and I was like, yes, I'll go do that. And And it felt pretty, it felt kind of like the beginning of the rest of my life, if that makes sense. Like, it really felt like I was on the helm of something really major that was going to change my life forever. And I can say that I wouldn't be here today if I didn't, probably didn't go down that road.
0: I mean, you you talk about how, like, it, working as a dominatrix ultimately is what taught you how to act.
2: It taught me how to act, but it also taught me my worth in a way. And it taught me um, how to have self-esteem, you know, because to be a dominatrix, you have to be empowered. You know, you and I didn't want to be faking it. I really wanted to be that. And also to come from such a like very masculine, cold environment to this very warm, feminine environment where we're like overdosing on estrogen. There's like dozens of girls around. And, you know, pretty soon we we formed, we were like a little dysfunctional family, but even so I felt very safe there, you know, even though there are men coming in and out There's, you know, we're, you know, we're still, there's still rules. We're still being checked up on. They're not leaving. You know what I mean? They're not just hanging us out to dry. They're, they're taking care of us. So, so it actually was very healing in a way. And, and maybe coming from such a misogynistic environment into the polar opposite, which is the dungeon where women rule and men are trash, Yeah. you know, maybe that that's what everyone every girl should do. Yeah. (laughs) You know, because out out in the in the real world, it's the opposite of that. You know, in movies and in media and everywhere, is like the woman kind of being submissive to the man. And yeah, and it's the, like an
0: antidote into, to the patriarchy, really. Because yeah, the, yeah, exactly. yeah, right. I understand what and you mean. And it was
2: very eye opening for me. And that and and I chose then and there that that was how I wanted to live. It, I didn't want to be submissive to a man. Is is the I act to
0: me is the acting part because you had to you had to no matter how you were feeling in in those moments you had to be able to walk through that door and 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 be somebody else is that was that when you when you say it taught me how to act yeah. is that what you mean
2: yeah and also just like the role-playing the characters so you know you have five clients come in and you know one wants the mean popular girl at school to like tease him and call him a loser. Then one wants, um, um, a nun. I don't know why. Yeah. One wants like a mean older sister. One wants a neglectful mommy. One. You know what I mean? So it's like the list of these guys, like fantasies is like, you know what I mean? So I'd have to be like 10 people every day with a couple minutes notice And it's all just improv. And you really have, and I remember (laughs) just the first time just being like, oh my God, like, what do I do? This is so weird. Like, and then eventually with practice, it just becomes second nature. And then with practice, you start to kind of know what they want before they even want it. So you're picking up on cues, you're really like using your intuition and really reading not just what they're saying, but body language and everything else. And, and then absorbing it, regurgitating it back to them. And, you know, and so it's kind of like an art form really, but it was a great exercise, just like a mental exercise. And, and I feel like it's probably why I'm so comfortable with improv today. I'm actually way more comfortable with improv than I am with like, trying to memorize a bunch of lines and rehearse them and, Like, I'd rather just dive in and see what happens. I mean, that's more exciting.
0: I see what you mean. And like, and you start thinking to yourself, I bet, like, (laughs) this is funny to say, you start thinking to yourself, like, I'm pretty good at this. Like, I'm good at the acting part of this. Like, I'm better than most people at the acting part of this.
2: Well, that, that was another major reason why the dungeon helped me so much. It was because... I, you know, prior to working there, guys told me I was hot or like, I was pretty. Yeah. I was just always kind of like, mm, you know, they want to get in my pants. You know, I didn't believe them. But then working at the dungeon and seeing like, oh, I'm getting booked more than everyone else. I'm getting more regular clients. I'm getting, I'm making more money than anyone else. Then I might say anyone else, but I was only top or one of the top earners. So that to me was. A way that i could see on paper it was proven you know and it was really only then that i was like oh okay maybe i am pretty and all these things and i that's when i really started to believe it because there was like a quantifiable metric on which i could base this it was fact it was factual um and i think when you sometimes you do have low self-esteem a lot of it is irrational it's not real It's in your head. So I had a lot of these kind of irrational ideas about myself that were disproven working in the dungeon. So for me, it was a very empowering time and not at all what some might expect from working in the sex industry.
0: You you come out of that, you know, um, doing a lot of different artistic endeavors. You know, you start taking photography more seriously. You put out an art exhibit called R.I.P. Julia Fox. It was kind of like a living funeral for your past, uh, past self. You, you launch a fashion line. You start to create a life for yourself as an artist. And I want to go yeah. back to the thing. So, like, maybe the first thing I want to know is in writing this book, did you – did you notice that? Like, oh, wow, I was really trying to establish, I, I began to establish uh, uh, an identity as an artist here.
2: Yeah. Well, I'd always wanted to be an artist, but that always felt like it was relegated to very privileged children. Right. You know, you, you kind of have to have rich parents to be exclusively an artist. Especially in New York. Exactly. Yeah. Especially in New York. Yeah. Um, might be different in other places but here you know you you have to work a lot the hustle is 24 7 and and then you know the time you might want to make some art you're so tired that it's just it's not happening you know so you know with with the the money and the the privilege as i was able to earn working at the dungeon is kind of what was able to secure um that future in art and in fashion and really doing the things I'd always wanted to do, but that just never seemed like they were in the cards for me. So I slowly was like, okay, I'm I'm gonna embrace this this identity that I'd been suppressing for a long time, but that really only came through the privilege of
1: money. Isn't she fascinating? You're going to hear more with Julia Fox coming up on this show, the second part of Julia's conversation with Tom Power, including how she dealt with the onslaught of fame, the the giant storm wave of fame after starring alongside Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems. You know, people can
2: write and say whatever they want about me. Maybe 10 years ago, a comment like that would feel like a kick in the gut. Now it feels like a breeze in my hair. You know, it's like it does nothing for me. I'm like, I'm, I'm a rock. I have
1: very thick skin. You'd have to. You would have to have thick skin to handle everything that Julia Fox has had thrown her way. I'm Talia Schlanger, filling in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q, and you're in the middle of Tom's chat with Julia Fox. Her new memoir is called Down the Drain. And up until now, they've been talking about all the moments that have led Julia to becoming the huge star that she is. But Back in 2019, the big catalyst for all of it. Happened When Julia was cast in Uncut Gems as the lead alongside Adam Sandler. And the amazing thing about it is she had never acted in anything before taking on that role. That's where Tom's conversation with Julia Fox picks up.
0: I'm always really curious about what happens when um, a lot of attention comes at you very, very quickly. Because I think it's a really, it's almost like a traumatic not to put words in your mouth, but it can, it sounds to me like a traumatic experience. Like just like one day you wake up and you are kind of everywhere, and that happened around the time you started in um, Uncut Gems. Now I should uh, acknowledge here that the actor strike is ongoing, and I want to be like respectful of anyone's decision to not talk specifically about mm-hmm. the 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 work itself. But Julie, what like what was the experience like of? Um, I guess all of a sudden being on magazine covers and, and, and talked about because of this role and, and, and talk shows, like it seems like a, a big blast of fame very, very quickly. How, how was that for you?
2: Um, it actually felt very natural and um, I wasn't really that faced with it, um, faced by it. I remember we were at the um, Toronto film festival and I was with my publicist in the car and you know we're getting out and there's all these photographers and it's like the first like real event for the movie and there's fans everywhere there's paparazzi and and they already know who I am and my publicist was like are you ready like you know kind of just checking in like are you okay are you ready and I remember I looked at her and I was like I was born ready and just like swung the door open and I was like I've arrived you know it kind of just felt like the the natural next step it kind of felt like like it was like that's where I, I knew that I was meant to be there, like I had earned my spot there, kind of you know why why did
0: it feel like I, that that's 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 not the usual answer,
2: yeah, I don't know, I think because. The, the move probably because of the particular project too and the fact that there was so much of me in that role. Howard what the f- is take going this. on? What
0: is it? I need you to listen to me carefully. I booked you on a blade okay you're gonna land on top of the Mohegan sun. Okay. There's a bet in that bag. So much is
2: in the bag. There's a lot.
0: I don't okay. want you to think about that all right. Um, I don't even want you to look at it until you get there and you take it out and give it to the teller.
2: You understand okay, okay, me? I got it. I got it. I'm
0: gonna the living shit out of you tonight,
2: you know <laughs> I that? I wish I could kiss you. Um, but you
0: didn't feel daunted by all these cameras and by all... I mean, it's not just that, Julia. Like, you were just talked about really. a lot. You didn't feel too daunted by that. I mean, it's very... No. Infil- like, y-
2: y- y- that But that was always the case, you know? And also, when you're growing up in New York, it feels like you're in the center of the world. And it's very easy to forget that you're not in the center of the world and there's other places, you know, you kind of feel like this is it. Like if you could make it here you could make it anywhere and and i'd always kind of been like a hood celebrity and had this like niche fame even if it was just in the streets or if it was just in downtown or if it was just in the city it always felt like like i was being talked about
0: i wondered if it was because when you go through also what you went through growing up I mean, you know, there's there's parts of this book that was really affected by, like we just, we just don't have time to get into today, about you know you you dating this really abusive man who gets put into uh, gets sent to jail and is threatening to murder you and your family, and you get you know you go to a, a psychiatric ward. There's um, I mean, there's one line about like the you, you, when you're addicted to opiates and you um, you overdose. What's, there's a line in the book that's like. I think I wrote, yeah, I wrote it down. Why does something inside me want to kill me? I was really struck by that, Julia.
2: Yeah, I mean, it it definitely felt like that. And I, I wasn't sure if it was like, I just think I'm invincible or if I just have like a death wish, but I was just always putting myself in like very dangerous situations and not really caring about the outcome and that probably comes from like a low self-esteem thing or maybe i'm just like so numb that i need like a really like ultimate thrill to feel anything at all because my adrenal glands are just like shot yeah from growing up here i mean it could be a multitude of things um but yeah i definitely struggled with that for a long time and it really wasn't until like motherhood that I kind of put all that away and now I've just lived like the most basic boring life, yeah. but I have to be, you know, like I always say that, like my son is my anchor so that I don't float away. And, you know, in some ways that's sucks. Cause I'm like, Oh, but I like, want to go like, I'm such a thrill seeker and I want to go do something dangerous. But then I'm like, well, you know, he, he needs his mommy and he needs me to be, Stable and secure and responsible and be the same yeah. every day. You know, I don't want him to see me hungover. I don't want him to see me upset, especially over like a man or something. Like, that's just like why I don't even date because I just don't want to throw anything into the mix that might set me off because I know my patterns and I don't feel like I'm strong enough to be able to say no or not strong enough to like abstain from, from my patterns. <laughs>
0: yeah. I know what you mean. And, and, and I, I wondered whether like living through all that was the thing that gave you like that made fame and, and, and all that tabloid stuff, not that big a deal because he, Hey, I've been through worse. Like I've been through, Probably you know that's what I mean?
2: Part of it too. Yeah, for sure. But that's kind of like how I feel today. I'm like, you know, people can write and say whatever they want about me. I'm like, you know, if maybe 10 years ago, a comment like that would feel like a kick in the gut. Now it feels like a breeze in my hair. You know, it's like, it does nothing for me. I'm like, I'm I'm a rock. I have very thick skin. Um, And more importantly, I just know who I am. There's nothing you could say to me that a, I'm probably saying worse things about oh. me to me or I haven't heard it before or, you know, I just know it's not true because yeah. I know who I am. So, But but yeah.
0: but it goes beyond tabloids when it comes to that kind of stuff. Like I was struck by and Julia, I feel like, I don't know, man, like when I read the when I read the last chapter of the book or like I maybe mean, the second last chapter, last chapter of the book, which is about your. Your relationship with with Kanye West, we, we, you call him the artist in in the book. I'll just I'll just say right now, I'm not I'm not interested in asking you anything of the particulars of your relationship. Like,
2: well, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's
0: not out of some like moralisticness on me. It's just like that's every. It's so you...
2: boring. It's so over and done with. It's so irrelevant. It's like it's a thirty three hundred and thirty page book, and he's in like five pages, and that's all anyone wants to talk about. And it's like, dude, he's like, I swear, I promise. He's the least interesting part of the book. Yeah. He, you know? Yeah.
0: yeah. The, the book but you is- you try
2: telling people yeah. that, man, they do not want to hear that.
0: The thing that did strike me about that part was that it was beyond tabloids, is that through that relationship and coming out of that relationship, there were like employment opportunities that were declined to you, that, mm-hmm. you know, there were employment opportunities that were offered to you because of the relationship that you were in. And there were employment opportunities that were taken away from you once you got out of that relationship. That yeah. that to me, like that impact on you is what really struck me about that chapter.
2: Yeah. And that happened like almost immediately. Like um, I had a, a movie role that was secured and they were like, oh, you know, like given all the tabloid stuff, it just seems like like a little bit much. And um, there was like another small like branding thing that was going. And then there was like a denim company that was, um, that he had gotten me the deal. But then once we broke up, it was like, oh, well, the deal was contingent on you being his girlfriend. So sorry. (laughs) So yeah, there was definitely a lot of that happening. And I was frustrated, of course. But, you know, I, every no that I hear is like more fuel for me to like prove them wrong or like to just keep going and like get there myself, you know?
0: The, the end of the book, um, no, when you open the book, the first thing you see is I wrote this down. Sometimes you have to burn your life down in order to experience the life that is truly meant for you. Um, we've done a lot of looking back, talking to you about this book. And I think with a book like this, it's, it is a lot of looking back on your, on your childhood and all the things you went through in your kind of in, insane life, Julia, to be honest, like it's, it's, it's a mm. wild life you've led up to this point. How do you see yourself today?
2: Um, I mean, I hate saying this cause I hate sounding like a cliche, but like, I really see myself as a mom. And I remember when I was pregnant, and I would like see like moms on Instagram and they'd have like so and so's mom in their bio. And I'd always be like, Ugh, I'll never be like that. You know, yeah, like yeah, I'll yeah. never like I just be a mom, you know, yeah. I'm an artist, I'm this, I'm that. And now that I'm a mom, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm literally just Valentino's mom. You know, like it's it's fine, it's okay. I you know, I, I wear it proudly. Um, and I don't know why I had such a strong aversion to that um kind of thinking prior probably because I was just so afraid to like lose my identity and I can say that I lost it, <laughs> but I can say that that was probably a blessing. You know, I probably couldn't have gone on much longer yeah. as that version of Julia Fox, you know, sorry, my big dog is here. What a sweetheart. I'm What's here. the dog's name? Fiona.
0: Fiona. Fiona. We can see Fiona. That's okay. Hi Fiona. Hello, sweet. Oh, what a doll! <laughs> yeah, she's at
2: 160 pounds.
0: How old is she? Uh,
2: she's 10. Oh,
0: big, big yeah, old. she's
2: an old lady. Big old
0: lady. Okay, so you were you were saying that like you probably wouldn't have been able to make it had you kept going.
2: Exactly. So in a way, I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I'm I'm not that that person anymore and and that's okay you know it's fine i feel like i've lived a lot of life and and it's okay but i'm not living in that way anymore you know
0: yeah i don't know if it's so much you lived a lot of life to me like you you survived a lot of life that's what i got yeah you got through a lot of life here julia um a pleasure pleasure to pleasure to meet you thanks so much for making the time
2: thanks for having me this was such a nice conversation it was nice to meet you
1: That's it. That's Tom's conversation with Julia Fox absolutely fascinating human being. I have not heard stories like that told and told with such honesty. Uh, If you want to catch another new conversation today you can hear Tom chatting with Sam Roberts he of Sam Roberts Band. Uh, They've got a new record out called The Adventures of Ben Blank and Sam will tell you why 20 years after their debut he wanted to take on the name of an alter ego of Ben Blank. You can find that right now in your podcast feed. I'm Tali Josh Langer sitting in for Tom Power. I'll see you next time.
2: For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.